When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Department of State, August 5th, 1803. It is with real pain, sir, that in the midst of so many proofs and motives of a reciprocal disposition in the United States and Great Britain to maintain amity and confidence any occurrence should happen on one side of a nature to produce irritation and justify complaint on the other. And it is the more to be regretted as it awakens apprehensions that effectual steps have not been taken by the British government for suppressing a practice which has heretofore been a source of so much just dissatisfaction. The United States can never acknowledge a right in any other nation to take from their vessels on the high seas any person whatever, other than military citizens or subjects of the enemy nation. Nor is it to be presumed, whatever the practice of naval commanders may be, that any such pretensions will be seriously maintained by the British government. In all cases, it is a violation of the neutral flag. It trespasses on the laws of nations and is no less impolitic than it is unjust. I assure myself, sir, that your knowledge of the disposition of the United States to preclude every incident unfriendly to the harmony so happily and so usefully subsisting with Great Britain will have its just influence in your representations to your government of this repeated and aggravated misconduct of its officer. An exemplary animaversion is due to the United States, and will doubtless be inflicted by a government in whose justice and friendship they are willing to confide. I have the honor. James Madison. Anglo-American relations in 1803 were in a rather good place. Indeed, historian Bradford Perkins describes it as a high point of relations between the two nations in the early republic. Rufus King's tenure as U.S. Minister to Britain had ended with an agreement which had helped to define boundaries between the U.S. and Canada, both in the Northeast as well as the Northwest. A new British minister was on his way to the U.S., the first in the post for years. During the armistice between Britain and France, quote, there were no seizures of American ships and thus no quarrels over maritime rights. Impressment was in abeyance, and the diplomats barely discussed it until just before the resumption of war. Though the outbreak of war in Europe again threatened to bring complications to the United States' relationship with the belligerent nations, one can imagine that there was a belief that, given where they were at, it was quite possible that the cordial air that had settled in might be able to remain in place for the most part. Little could they have imagined that the coming of the new British minister would be on an ill wind that would see Anglo-American relations deteriorate once more. That, however, is getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Before we go any further, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Jacob Collier from the podcast on Germany for providing the intro quote for this episode. As we've already seen in our podcast, populations of immigrants of German heritage have had a sizable impact on American history. So if you'd like to know more about the history that forms the backbone of German-American culture, I hope you'll head over to the podcast on Germany after you finish this episode. It can be found online at podcastongermany, all one word, 
sourcenotes.com. I'll also post a link on the Source Notes page for this episode. I'd also like to take a moment to thank our patrons, Michelle, Kara, and Scott, as well as our anonymous patron. I greatly appreciate their financial contributions, which cover the monthly hosting fees for the podcast and allow me to start thinking about technology improvements to enable the podcast to move even further ahead in its mission and journey. If you would like to become a patron of the podcast, simply go to patreon.com forward slash presidencies and sign up. If you're not able to contribute to a monthly donation, but still want to help the podcast, go to presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com, and there you'll find the many ways you can help the podcast. With that said, let's dive in. Before turning our attention to the new British minister traveling to Washington, D.C., I think it's high time that we go in the opposite direction and check in on what's happening over in Western Europe. We last discussed the breakdown of the peace between Britain and France in May 1803, back in episode 3.14. Militarily, these two powers were mismatched adversaries. While France, under First Consul Napoleon Bonaparte, boasted one of the most formidable armies that Europe had ever seen, especially in going up against an island nation, their navy left much to be desired. Meanwhile, Britain was a strong naval power, but its army was, quote, notorious for the poverty of its human and material resources. Napoleon had already begun work at reforming the Navy, as was discussed back in episode 3.9, but there was still much more that needed to happen. As described by Napoleon biographer Alan Schoen, quote, perhaps the most obvious general defect in the French Navy at this time was its form of administration and lack of proper authoritative channels. The British, although having no naval minister per se, did have a First Lord of the Admiralty, who sat in on cabinet meetings at Downing Street. The First Lord oversaw the Admiralty Board, which, made up chiefly of admirals, was alone responsible for the actions of the Royal Navy. The Prime Minister and the government could send instructions to the Navy, but there was a chain of command that would actually determine how to execute those instructions. Meanwhile, though the French had set up a naval commission in an attempt to mimic the British Admiralty Board, this commission, quote, was given no real power, could not draw up and issue orders to fleets and commanders, and therefore could not initiate action. It had no real independent authority. I won't go into too much detail about the issues in the French Navy during the Napoleonic Wars, but suffice it to say that the fact that all authority still resided in Napoleon would prove quite problematic. For, as we've seen with the American Navy, the fact that the central government issued an order to a naval squadron didn't mean that it would be immediately executed. The distances and logistics involved with getting a message to ships at sea meant that forces couldn't move nearly as fast as, oh, say, an army that could be reached by a messenger or on horseback in a few days. Meanwhile, the government of British Minister Addington knew that the resumption of war necessitated a step up in their diplomatic overtures to other major European powers to secure coalition partners, or, at the very least, ensure continued good relations with powers that opted to remain neutral in the conflict. The Russian Empire was a big focus of their efforts. Unfortunately for the British, Tsar Alexander Pavlovich was more focused on keeping the peace and had indeed sent an offer to Addington to mediate in the conflict between the two nations to avoid a new war. His offer did not make it to London before the declaration of war, so it was a moot point upon arrival. As noted by Addington biographer Charles Federak, quote, the Russians were not ready for war, so the diplomatic aim shifted to just keep on the Russians' good side and prevent them from getting too close to the French for the time being. Likewise, the Habsburg monarchy was little inclined to break from its policy, quote, 
to maintain strict neutrality. In the initial conversations after the declaration of war, the British were told that for Austria to resume war against France, they would need a subsidy of two million pounds. British Foreign Secretary Lord Hawkesbury declined to pay that much, but in July offered the sum of 300 to 400,000 pounds in exchange for a secret agreement. The government in Vienna turned him down. Hawkesbury concluded that while the Habsburg government, quote, had the right inclination for war against France, they lacked the resources. The Prussians, meanwhile, had no inclination, as they would risk much more than they would gain by turning against Napoleon's government. Thus, though war was declared in 1803, the remainder of the year would find both France and Britain posturing and preparing, but not actually carrying on active campaigns. But trust that we will be watching this space, dear listener. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcast. Meanwhile, the American diplomats in Europe had to figure out their position, and that was doubly important for the special envoy, James Monroe. When last we really focused in on Monroe in episode 3.14, he was making preparations to head to Madrid in order to negotiate with the Spanish to secure West Florida for the U.S. It was while Monroe was attending a dinner at the home of the French Second Consul Jean-Jacques Régis de Cambaceres that he learned that his mission to Madrid may be a moot point. Cambaceres, who had been late to his own dinner due to a meeting with Napoleon, upon his arrival went to Monroe and urged him not to travel to Spain. When Monroe started asking why, Cambaceres directed him to the French Minister of the Treasury, Francois Barbet-Maubois. Finding the Treasury Minister not at home, Monroe then went to Spanish Minister to France, Don José Nicolas de Azera, who was rather puzzled that Monroe didn't know that U.S. Minister to France, Robert Livingston, had requested the negotiations over West Florida be done in Paris. Monroe confronted Livingston about the matter the next day, and Livingston demurred that the suggestion of the negotiations being conducted in Paris was, quote, purely informal, and hadn't intended on stealing any authority in the matter away from Monroe or U.S. Minister to Spain, Charles Pinckney. Still, that was what had happened, which Livingston admitted in his report to Secretary of State Madison on the matter a few months later. To make sure everyone was on the same page, Monroe marched Livingston over to Azera's lodgings and made the U.S. Minister inform Azera that the negotiations would take place in Madrid. The problem with this, as Livingston saw it and explained to Madison months after Monroe had left Paris, was that having the negotiations take place in Madrid had led to an unnecessary delay when it seemed, according to Azera, that, quote, it was probable the King of Spain would sell Florida to us on good terms. Livingston did make sure to tell Madison in September that, quote, I have carefully avoided a renewal of any conversation on the subject with him, though he, i.e. Azera, had given me several openings. However, 
we can more accurately point to a couple of developments as the main reasons for delaying Monroe from heading to Madrid to begin negotiations as he had originally intended. First, he had learned that French First Consul Napoleon was declining to intercede on behalf of the American proposal to purchase West Florida. Given that France was now back at war with Britain, the First Consul needed all of the allies he could get, and thus, as he had already given Louisiana to the U.S. for a bargain, he felt that he now needed to do something to stay in the Spanish government's good graces. Without French support of the proposal, Monroe felt that there was little need for him to travel to Madrid, as it would quite probably end up being a fruitless endeavor, especially since his services were needed elsewhere. As discussed in episode 3.14, in May 1803, Rufus King left his position as U.S. Minister to Great Britain. Normally, the post would be filled by a chargé d'affaires until a new minister was sent, but it seems that the chargé post in London was also vacant upon King's departure. This situation, as Monroe saw it, quote, may expose our commercial concerns to much embarrassment if there is no one there soon to take charge of them, especially in light of the new war between Britain and France. Thus, Monroe decided to take charge of the situation and travel to London to assume the post of U.S. Minister to Britain. Now, this isn't as completely out of left field as it originally seems. Livingston and Monroe had just received Madison's letter of April 18th, in which Madison had instructed the two diplomats that, quote, in case a conventional arrangement with France should have resulted from the negotiations with which you are charged, it will be expedient for you to make such communication to the British government as will assure it that nothing has been done inconsistent with our good faith and as will prevent a diminution of the good understanding which subsists between the two countries. To facilitate such a communication, a blank commission was sent for an appointment to represent the U.S. with the British government. Either Livingston or Monroe's name could be filled in for the role. And just in case Livingston opted to travel to London, a commission appointing Monroe as Minister to France was sent along so that he could step in for Livingston. Though Monroe had the better relationship with the French, as good relations needed to be preserved with the British in order to protect the trade with that country, which was a large part of the American economy, and there was also an opportunity to get assurances that British traders would not trespass on the newly acquired lands of the Louisiana Purchase, thereby opening those lands up to American trade, Monroe made arrangements to move with his family to London. Monroe would bid the French First Consul farewell at a formal audience of leave at St. Cloud on June 24th, and Napoleon would take the opportunity to remark that the reason he had agreed to the Louisiana Purchase was to preserve the friendship between France and the United States, and that, if the U.S. was serious about having an amicable relationship as well, the Jefferson administration would ensure that the nation's ports were not, quote, havens for British merchantmen. Bonaparte also gave some friendly advice that, quote, the present was not the proper time to treat with Spain about Florida. Monroe replied that it would be better for Spain to come to an agreement with the U.S. over Florida than, quote, risk the consequences of a rupture in relations. With that, Monroe bid adieu to his time in France, and on July 17th, he and his family crossed the channel to Britain. Now, there was reason for Monroe to be concerned about how he would be received in London, given the fact that his support of the French Revolution, and now not one but two French governments created in its aftermath, was well known. Any trepidation he had was soon dispelled, as he was received by British Foreign Secretary Lord Hawkesbury within a day of his arrival in London, and Hawkesbury was described in the meeting as being, quote, gracious and forthright. 
Monroe and his family would have a few weeks to get settled into their new surroundings before Monroe was received by British King George III on August 17th, the official start of his ministerial duties. The meeting with the British King was an interesting experience for the man who in his youth had fought against British forces. But King George, as he was reputed to do regularly, put Monroe at ease, asking him about where he was from and with the two having a genial discussion about Monroe's alma mater, William and Mary. A bit of tension was felt when George asked, quote, you have been in France. And after Monroe quickly noted that he had served as a diplomat there, quote, at a very interesting epoch, the king quipped that, quote, you know those people. You will now become acquainted with those of this country and be able to judge between them. Despite the cordial welcome, Monroe soon found that no one in the British government, from the Prime Minister on down, was interested in discussing a new treaty to ban the impressment of American sailors, a major concern now that Britain was back at war. It would not just be Monroe's responsibility to push the issue, for, as I've mentioned the last couple of episodes, the British government was sending a new minister to Washington, D.C. At first glance, one might think that Anthony Mary might be someone that the Jefferson administration could work with, for, quote, he did not qualify as a man of rank and splendor among his own countrymen. His father had been a merchant in London who had specialized in importing Spanish wines, and thus, quite appropriately, most of Mary's diplomatic career was spent in Spain. Mary's appointment to Washington was long in coming, for he was first mentioned in the British Foreign Office as a possible successor to the previous minister, Robert Liston, back in late September 1800. Likely the change in government with Pitt's resignation as prime minister played a factor initially. Then, Mary was called into service during the negotiations between the British and the French at Amiens. Thus, the post remained vacant, and since it looked like Mary might be tied up in France for a while, another name, Francis James Jackson, was put forward as another possibility. When Rufus King commented on the two in a report to Madison in April 1802, King concluded that Jackson was, quote, positive, vain, and intolerant, while he described Mary as, quote, a plain, unassuming, and sensible man. In his role as the U.S. minister in London, King used his influence with Hawkesbury to talk down Jackson, and lo and behold, Mary received the appointment with his official orders being issued by King George on September 16th. This would be Mary's first appointment to a post as minister plenipotentiary, though he had served as an interim minister in Paris prior to this appointment. Mary, however, would not be coming to Washington, D.C. alone. Prior to his departure across the Atlantic, he married Elizabeth Leeds, a widow whose husband had passed away in 1788. The new Mrs. Mary was, quote, said to have been a rich widow and brought with her so many servants and so much baggage that, according to her own report, members of Congress were staggered upon their arrival in Washington. Though she would gain a reputation and be portrayed in later histories as being, quote, unquote, haughty, Elizabeth was described by friends and associates as, quote, a charming hostess and a good conversationalist, with a scholarly interest in botany. The Mary set sail from England on September 25th, arriving in Norfolk, Virginia, on November 4th. From there, it took them a few weeks to arrive in the District of Columbia, and they apparently settled in Georgetown on November 26th. One can only imagine the shock that the Marys had upon their arrival in this capital that the Americans called a city. Though the city had continued to grow in the three years since the government had moved from Philadelphia, it was still a far cry from London, Paris, or Madrid. As noted by historian Constance McLaughlin Green, despite the city's growth in its first decade, quote, material progress was slow. Ups were followed by downs. 
affected in part by the insecurity born of congressional flirtations with moving the capital, in part by the cutthroat competition among the district's three cities, and in part by business fluctuations in the rest of the country. One shock would only follow another as the Marys began to interact with the inhabitants of Washington. The new minister presented his credentials to Secretary of State Madison on November 28th, and the secretary in turn took Mary to the president's house to meet with Jefferson the next day. Now, before I go into the details of this meeting, I should note that in European circles, the official reception of a new minister was considered one of those moments of pomp and circumstance. As a contrast, Monroe had rehearsed his opening remarks to George III prior to his reception and had received instructions on, quote, how to approach the king in a very respectful and conciliatory manner, humble but not timid, erect but not defiant, leaving enough equal space for three bows before stopping. He had been received in St. James's Palace and rode to the palace in a carriage. After being greeted by Hawkesbury and the master of the ceremonies for the court of St. James, he, quote, was led through the great council chamber where a crowd of ministers, noblemen, bishops, and sycophants turned to see the latest American minister, then walked through Queen Anne's room to the door that led to the presence room, which Monroe entered to find the king, quote, standing beside his throne. Do you have that image in your mind, dear listener? Okay, so now you have an idea of what Mary may have had in mind, or at least some scaled-down version of that, as he made his way through the rough-shod roads of Washington to the president's house. This description of their meeting comes secondhand from Josiah Quincy a few years later, and we should note that Quincy, as a Federalist, had reason to paint Jefferson in the worst possible light. However, as it has become one of the most famous retellings of the meeting, and is such a fun description, I give you Josiah Quincy's recounting from the minister's perspective of Mary's arrival at the President's house on November 29, 1803. Quote, I, in my official costume, found myself, at the hour of reception he had himself appointed, introduced to a man as the President of the United States, not merely in an undress, but actually standing in slippers down at the heels and both pantaloons, coat, and underclothes, indicative of utter slovenliness and indifference to appearances, and in a state of negligence, actually studied. Though in Mary's report to Hawkesbury of the meeting on December 6th, he only stated that Jefferson had been in his, quote, usual morning attire when he was received. It was clear that he took the nonchalant nature of the meeting as an affront, an intended slight against him and his role as a representative of the British government. It was even further compounded by the fact that the formal speech that he had worked on during his trip to the U.S. and had carefully prepared as his official introduction to the United States and its government was heard by only two people, Jefferson and Madison. As I'm sure we've all experienced, first impressions are important, especially with folks with whom we're going to be working. And Mary had not gotten a good first impression at all from the American president. Still, that could all be smoothed over by hosting a dinner in Mary's honor, right? Surely, that thought went through Mary's mind when he received an invitation to dine at the president's house on December 2nd. Mary's first problem upon arriving for the dinner was the other guest or at least one in particular. Included in the dinner party that evening was French chargé d'affaires Louis-André Pichot. With the two nations at war, it seemed rather odd for the top British and French representatives to be at a dinner, unless, of course, it was a dinner for the entire diplomatic corps of Washington. However, 
the Danish chargé d'affaires, Peter Peterson, was not present. What was even more shocking was when the party was called to the dinner table. It was Jefferson's custom, if the party was mixed, and there was a woman standing in as hostess for the evening, to escort her to the table. On this evening, Dolly Madison was serving in that role, so Jefferson put out his arm and escorted her, leaving the rest of the men in the party to lead the nearest lady to the table. The protocol that the Marys were used to was that, if someone was being honored, the wife of the honoree would be escorted in. They were also used to assign seating based on rank, but at Jefferson's table, one grabbed whatever seat was available, and if there was a particular one that someone attending desired, they'd better be quick, as Mary found out when he aimed to sit next to the wife of the Spanish minister to the U.S. Arujo, but was beaten to the punch by a congressman. The effrontery was compounded when they discovered that this pell-mell dining style was not confined to the president's house. They attended a dinner four days later at the Madison's home, and yet again, here was the disorganized clamor to the table. The Marys were having none of it here, however. The British minister escorted his wife to the head of the table, where Hannah Gallatin, the wife of the Secretary of the Treasury, was ready to take her seat, and Mrs. Gallatin offered the place to Mrs. Mary, who, as described by Madison biographer Ralph Ketchum, quote, took it without prudency or apology. After this, the Marys would not accept any more dinner invitations from Democratic-Republican leaders, instead preferring what they felt were the more cultured dining parties of Federalists. Naturally, given Jefferson's historic animosity towards the British, the question has been raised as to whether Jefferson intentionally set out to antagonize Mary. However, and get those grains of salt at the ready, folks, the evidence does not seem to suggest that. Let's take Mary's initial reception by Jefferson first. At this point in his presidency, Jefferson had only recognized one new member of the diplomatic corps in Washington, and that had been the Danish chargé Peterson a couple of years prior. Mary would later learn upon asking Peterson that the Danish representative had been met in a similar, shall we say, informal fashion. For the dinner, there is even more evidence that this was the usual style of dining at the president's house during Jefferson's tenure. To Jefferson, the seating by rank seemed a convention of aristocracy and monarchy, and the last thing he wanted was to seem like an aristocratic host. Indeed, William Seal, in his study of the history of the White House, notes that, for dinners held in the smaller dining room, Jefferson would not allow servants to wait on guests, but rather, the guests were expected to make use of dumbwaiters to serve themselves. Just to be able to visualize it in your mind, a dumbwaiter is basically a lift or a small elevator that is used to bring food from one floor or level to another. Thus, the food would be sent up from the kitchen, and the guests would retrieve their plate from the lift. Jefferson had apparently picked up this mode of dining from Parisian society where it was in fashion in the 1780s when he was there. Typically, when women were present, as they were on the evening the Marys dined at the president's house, the larger dining room was used. Even in this setting, though, the pell-mell seating was the order of the day, and with dumbwaiters installed to assist the servants. Unlike the usual convention of having one servant to wait on one or two guests, Jefferson was able to get away with a minimum number of servants in attendance. The one other bit of evidence that Jefferson was not intentionally out to annoy the new British minister was that he and the administration had apparently gotten along well with the British chargé d'affaires, Edward Thornton. As noted by historian Bradford Perkins, though, there were two differences between Mary and Thornton. In addition to Mary's higher diplomatic rank, Thornton was a bachelor, while Mary, quote, was married to a lady not inclined to allow real or fancied slights to pass unnoticed. 
But wait, you ask, what about Pichon being invited to the dinner? Well, as was the practice of both Washington and Adams, dinner guests at the president's house included members of the opposition as well as members of the president's party. And to avoid any allegations of favoritism, the invitations were often staggered. What was good enough for domestic diplomacy was good enough for the foreign representatives in Washington. And this, in fact, was the reason why the Danish charge Peterson had not been invited, as he had only recently attended a dinner at the president's house. Meanwhile, it had only been Mary who had assumed that the dinner was in his honor. As Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone noted, quote, Jefferson would probably have denied that there ever was a guest of honor at his table. Jefferson loved to entertain, and as the Marys were new to town, he likely saw it as a nice gesture to invite them to join. However, given the nature of the situation between Britain and France, it's easy to see that he might have thought it more diplomatic to invite the representatives of both nations to dinner to avoid any rumors that one was favored over the other. Given his past support of the French Revolution, as well as the fact that one of Napoleon's brothers, Jerome Bonaparte, was set to marry the niece of Secretary of the Navy Robert Smith later in the month, there was more than enough reason to believe that Jefferson and his administration were predisposed to the French. But as we've discussed in previous episodes, including but not limited to episode 3.9, the president had been making overtures to the British and drawing closer to that power as a counterweight to the threat posed by France's plans for a new colonial empire. Whatever the president's thinking in the matter, Mary was, to put it lightly, not best pleased, and his resentment would only grow as time went on. For now, though, we must leave the not-so-merry Mary and return our attention back to more domestic affairs as there was much going on in December 1803. The next year would mark an important year for elections in the United States, including the fifth presidential election. Though Jefferson was riding a wave of popularity in political circles for the Louisiana Purchase, there was still some concern that, whether it be in the upcoming election or in subsequent elections, the chaos of the election of 1800 would be repeated. That concern is quite understandable given the circumstances. It seemed like the partisan dividing line was becoming ever more defined, and, as we discussed in episode 2.24, had there not been a compromise reached in the House in February 1801, it is quite possible that Adams's term would have ended without a clear successor. The nation's leaders remembered the anxiety of that moment, and some of them at least wanted to do something to eliminate the possibility of that ever happening again. The first session of Congress after Jefferson assumed office a constitutional amendment was put forward which would distinguish the electoral college ballots cast for president from those cast for vice president. Though the bill did pass with the necessary two-thirds majority in the House, it was one vote shy in the Senate, and thus it would have to wait until later. Year after year, session after session passed, and every time the idea of the amendment came up once more, it, quote, was deferred. By the fall of 1803, It was clear that if anything was to be done before the next presidential election, it was now or never, as the amendment not only had to pass both houses of Congress, but it also had to be ratified by three-fourths of the state legislatures, which meant 13 out of the 17 states at that point. Thus, the matter was taken up by Congress in early December, and Federalists, seeing this as an attack on their ability to possibly influence the course of the election as they had aimed to do in 1800, came out swinging in opposition to the measure. This time, though, the amendment easily passed in the Senate by a vote of 22 to 10. Now, as there were, in fact, 34 seats in the Senate at this time, and only 32 of the members had voted, 
Federalists tried to argue that there was in fact one more vote needed to meet the two-thirds majority required for the amendments past the Senate. Their objections were ignored as the attention turned to the House. In that body, the vote was much closer than before, and it was only with the vote of the Speaker of the House, Nathaniel Macon, that the amendment passed. Some Democratic Republicans from New England joined with the Federalists in opposing the amendment. And though I can't find a reason why, I can only speculate that it relates to a concern that this might limit their influence in presidential elections as the nation grew larger. With the amendment passed and legislation authorizing Jefferson to send it on to the states on December 12th, it was now a wait-and-see game to see if three-fourths of the state legislatures would ratify it in time. Meanwhile, what did the vice president, who is part of the cause for concern, think of this? It's been a while since we checked in on Vice President Aaron Burr, episode 3.8 by my count, and there's a reason for that. As you may recall from the Washington series, when his vice president, John Adams, rarely got a mention, likewise, Burr was sidelined when he assumed the role. With Burr, given his part in the election fiasco and his continued demonstrations of ambition and political positioning, Jefferson and his supporters saw the vice president as one to hold at arm's length. Likewise, the so-called Clinton-Livingston Coalition in New York, who Burr had gotten on the wrong side of in the past, intended to do all they could to further sap Burr of any political power. Thus, the vice president's mind in 1802 had turned more towards his family. I'm anticipating doing a special episode on Burr at some point, but for now, it is worth noting that, like Jefferson, Burr had suffered the loss of most of his children very early on. And thus, at this point, only his daughter Theodosia, born in 1783, had survived to adulthood. As his wife, also named Theodosia, had died in 1794, his daughter was very near and dear to the vice president's heart. As noted in episode 3.3, she had married just before Burr assumed the vice presidency in 1801, and 1802 brought the news that Theodosia was pregnant. Thus, at the close of the congressional session, he headed south to where Theodosia was in Charleston, South Carolina, and was on hand when, in mid-May, she gave birth to her first son, who was named Aaron Burr Alston, after his grandfather. Unfortunately, as noted by Burr biographer Milton Lomas, quote, the birth of the child left Theodosia unwell, permanently so, as time would reveal. As her husband planned to spend the summer campaigning for a seat in the South Carolina state legislature, Burr took his daughter and grandson as well as the sister-in-law of Theodosius, back up to his estate, Richmond Hill, in New York. During this time, in addition to seeking curative remedies for Theodosia, the vice president grew quite close to his new grandson, and when his family left Richmond Hill to return home in the fall, Burr urged his daughter, quote, that until they came together again, he must have a faithful account of his grandson's every mood and action. That news was certainly more joyful than most, which reached the vice president as 1802 wound down and gave way to 1803. Burr, though he had ended up with the second prize after the 1800 presidential election, was quite sensitive about preserving his image to position himself for future opportunities. Thus, at the end of 1801, when he learned that a mapmaker and journalist named James Wood was coming out with a history of the Adams administration, Burr managed to get his hands on a pre-publication copy and discovered that, along with attacks on Adams and his supporters, the book also contained, quote, 30 pages of high eulogism on Burr himself. Realizing what this might do to the Democratic-Republican cause, as well as his own reputation, Burr reached out to the publishers and told them, quote, that the book was loaded with libel, 
some of it actionable. The vice president didn't want to cause them any undue trouble, though. He realized they were businessmen after all, and thus he had a solution. He would simply buy the entire first edition. That's right, all 1,250 copies. Burr even arranged for a brig to travel to London to purchase the entire run of the British edition of the book. Now, as one would expect, though Burr did make this purchase, a couple of copies somehow grew legs and walked off, for in June 1802, another edition of the book appeared. Though the publisher's names were removed, the book was advertised as, quote, the work said to have been suppressed by the vice president. It was Burr's suppression of this book that would give the occasion for a former Burr supporter to publicly turn against the vice president. As Jefferson had helped to launch the career of the scandalous James Callender, so too had Burr arranged for an editor from the British Isles to come over to the U.S. and take control of a Democratic-Republican newspaper, the Argus. As Jefferson found with Callender, so too would Burr discover with James Cheatham that there is little loyalty to be had in one willing to engage in the attack operation of factional politics. Cheatham freed himself from any obligation to Burr by forming a new partnership with David Denniston, a cousin of DeWitt Clinton, and becoming the editor of The American Citizen. As noted by Burr biographer Milton Lomas, quote, By the summer of 1801, New Yorkers were speaking of The American Citizen as Clinton's journal. And it was a common assumption that the relationship of editor Cheatham to DeWitt Clinton was that of a dummy to its ventriloquist. When Cheatham learned of Burr's attempts to suppress Wood's book, he wrote to President Jefferson, and Jefferson replied, thanking the editor for the information and asserting that, quote, the fact of the suppression of a work mentioned by you is curious and pregnant with considerations. He also asked, quote, is it impossible to get a single copy of the work? Cheatham couldn't provide Jefferson with a copy, but within a few months, he did provide a full-throated attack on the man that many Democratic-Republicans considered Jefferson's chief enemy. While Burr was in South Carolina, on May 26, 1802, Cheatham started his attack with an editorial in The American Citizen about Burr's suppression of Woods's book as a sign that he was angling for Federalist support for a run for president in 1804. And he soon followed up with a pamphlet entitled, quote, The Narrative of the Suppression of Colonel Burr of the history of the administration of John Adams. Cheatham would spend the next couple of years in what has been dubbed the pamphlet wars attacking Burr, but arguably the most impactful of his attacks was released on June 22nd and entitled A View of the Political Conduct of Aaron Burr, Esquire, Vice President of the United States. As Cheatham asserted in the beginning, quote, I've endeavored to represent the character of Mr. Burr in its true light. In doing this, I have been actuated only by those considerations for the public welfare which every good citizen must feel. I have warned the people of an evil of great magnitude. It is for them to apply the remedy. Cheatham put into print the allegation that had been floating around in private circles for a while. Quote, The moment he, Burr, was nominated in 1800, he put into operation a most extensive, complicated, and wicked scheme of intrigue to place himself in the presidential chair. He spent at least one year's salary on expresses he sent hither and yon, and he seems to have carried on a secret correspondence with the Federalists from the period of his nomination. Burr's remaining supporters would come to his defense, and even John Wood would publish in Burr's defense a work titled A Correct Statement of the Various Sources from Which the History of the Administration of John Adams was Compiled and the Motives for its Suppression by Colonel Burr. 
Burr would likewise get support from another surprising corner. As described by Lomas, quote, some of the kindest words for Burr appeared in the columns of the New York Evening Post. Strange provenance for them. The Post was Hamilton's mouthpiece in New York City, and editor William Coleman cheerfully admitted that he took counsel with the general on all matters of importance. But Coleman had once been Burr's law partner. Coleman put his personal loyalties above party, and indeed, from my research, it seems that Coleman was right. There is little existing evidence of a grand, long-planned scheme by Burr to steal the election from Jefferson in 1800. Though, as we discussed in episode 3.3, Burr was potentially opportunistic at the time, he also did not strike while the iron was hot to secure the presidency. Unfortunately for Burr, as has been too often the case, and as the adage goes, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get its pants on. Likely due to his personal affairs, Burr was delayed in his response to Cheatham's assertions, and thus, he didn't realize until it was too late the damage that had been done to his reputation. Even in July, he wrote that, quote, these things will do no harm to me personally. Despite this optimism, the pamphlet wars would end up leaving Burr in an even more diminished state, while some of his opponents continued their ascendancy. DeWitt Clinton, who we last discussed in episode 3.6, continued to grow in prominence in political circles in the Empire State. When we last saw him, he was a member of the Council of Appointments, which effectively controlled the state spoil system. After utilizing that to consolidate support for the Clinton-Livingston faction, Clinton was elected to fill the U.S. Senate vacancy left when John Armstrong resigned from his seat and on February 9, 1802, took his oath of office. While he was in Washington, he left his brother-in-law, Ambrose Spencer, as the ground leader of the Clinton faction, while DeWitt continued to direct from afar. DeWitt, however, would only remain in the Senate for a short while, opting to return to New York in order to assume the office of mayor of New York City. DeWitt's resignation precipitated an even further rift in the Democratic-Republican faction in New York, as Spencer, in his role as a leader in the state assembly, pushed forward a candidate to replace DeWitt in the Senate in Washington, who was not universally accepted. New York Governor George Clinton, DeWitt's uncle, commented in writing to numerous folks, including DeWitt, of his opposition to Spencer's impolitic handling of the situation. As he wrote to his nephew, quote, I esteem Spencer and feel myself disposed to do every proper thing to serve him, but he is an impetuous politician and stands in need of a confidential friend of more moderation to advise and control him. For Governor Clinton, his nephew served as a close advisor during his term of office, and the governor continued in this term, his seventh in the office, to pursue some of the same policies that he had in the past. As noted by Clinton's biographer, John Kaminsky, quote, he asked for and received appropriations for strengthening the militia, and he continued his decade-long pursuit of additional fortifications for New York City. Unfortunately, the cost-cutting Jefferson administration failed to provide adequate funds for defense, and matters were made worse when New York's treasurer embezzled funds earmarked for fortifying the port. Despite these setbacks, Clinton's term as governor had largely been seen as a success, and he oversaw an improvement in the financial condition of the state to the point that they were able to get rid of the state tax by the end of his tenure of office. There was one issue, though, where uncle and nephew did not see eye to eye. About midway through his term, Governor Clinton informed DeWitt, as well as a few other close friends, quote, that it was his intention to decline a re-election should I be proposed as a candidate. 
When DeWitt received a letter from his uncle on November 26, 1803, explaining his decision and his reasoning, Mayor Clinton picked up his pen and wrote to President Jefferson. He noted to Jefferson that Vice President Burr was believed to be making inquiries to determine his chances in a possible run for governor, and asserted that Governor Clinton's decision not to run for re-election could not have come at a worse time. As the mayor emphasized to Jefferson, quote, It is of great consequence that he should not persist in this determination. I'm in hopes that he may be prevailed upon to change it. Perhaps a letter from you may be of singular service. Meanwhile, Governor Clinton went ahead and started making plans for his retirement, including the purchase of an estate that was located, quote, at the mouth of Jan Kasper's kill at Poughkeepsie. He may have felt that the fight for the Republican, small-r Republican cause, required, quote, a person not so far advanced in years as I am and enjoying better health. But he would soon find that leaders in the party had other plans for him. For now, though, let's catch up with someone who would be on hand to witness the fruition of plans long in the making. The last time that we discussed our old friend, General James Wilkinson, was back in episode 3.7. Though Wilkinson was still senior officer of the U.S. Army, he ultimately spent a good portion of Jefferson's first term away from the Army headquarters in Pittsburgh. Starting in the summer of 1801, Wilkinson traveled to the northern frontier, quote, to supervise the construction of a road linking Lakes Erie and Ontario, then went south to be a part of some of the land treaties that Benjamin Hawkins was involved in, as discussed in episode 3.16. Part of the reason for this is that Secretary of War Henry Dearborn didn't trust Wilkinson and did everything he could to minimize Wilkinson's direct control. As described by Wilkinson biographer Andrew Linkletter, quote, administratively, Functions concerning pay and equipment, once performed by military officers who might be beholden to the commanding general, were transferred to civilian staff answerable to the war secretary. The general's direct command over operational duties now had to be mediated through three colonels appointed to command the three regiments that constituted the fighting forces of the army. West Point was put under the direct control of the war secretary. Wilkinson certainly got the point and tried to make moves to transition to a new post. He first expressed his interest in becoming governor of the Mississippi Territory, but as we know, that went to William C.C. Claiborne. Then, he put his name forward to become Surveyor General of the Army, but Dearborn shot down that idea. Thus, Wilkinson just kept drifting around the West. In late January 1803, the general made his way to Fort Adams on the Mississippi River, about 40 miles south of Natchez. He arrived just in time to get involved in the Mississippi Territory's response to the right of deposit being denied to American merchants in New Orleans, as discussed in episode 3.16. Though he wrote back to Secretary Dearborn requesting official sanction to get involved, Wilkinson also took unauthorized steps, including gathering information from contacts in New Orleans and gathering a force of around 500 at Fort Adams in case he needed to head down the river to take New Orleans. Instead of leading an expedition to the port city, however, Wilkinson was assigned to negotiate with the Muskogee over more land sessions for settlers from Georgia. He returned to Fort Adams in July to find little new information on what he should do with regards to the New Orleans situation. Thus, he wrote to Secretary Dearborn asserting that, quote, If anything professional is to be done which may imply trust and hazard, I hope you may confide the execution to me or give an order to someone to knock me on the head. Now, as we've seen in prior episodes, the same frustration over lack of information, direction, or updates was felt by many others in the West, including Governor Claiborne, 
but Wilkinson could only see it from his perspective and took it as a personal slight. When word arrived that the Louisiana Purchase had been concluded through diplomacy, Wilkinson saw possibly his last opportunity at personal glory fading away. Meanwhile, as early as July 1803, Jefferson was recruiting trusted agents in the West to help him secure Louisiana upon ratification. On July 18th, he wrote to Governor Claiborne that, quote, the government and public property, archives, etc. of Louisiana are to be delivered up to us immediately after the exchange of ratifications, which will be between the 17th and 30th of October. As this is an operation with the French commissary and Spanish governor and intendant, which will require to be conducted with skill and delicacy, I had it in contemplation to get you to repair thither at the time to transact it, and to hold the place some little time until Congress shall direct what is to be done more particularly. Though Claiborne had been preparing to take some approved time off to travel, he wrote back on August 12th upon receiving Jefferson's letter that, quote, I shall with great pleasure postpone my journey to Tennessee and will hold myself in readiness to embark for Orleans immediately on receiving orders, to be appointed on the part of my government to receive the island of Orleans, the province of Louisiana, and the public property, archives, etc., I should esteem the highest honor which could be conferred upon me, and I know of no mission which would be so grateful to my feelings. Secure Louisiana would require military forces as well, something that Claiborne mentioned in his letter, but it doesn't appear from what I've seen that much was communicated to Wilkinson during this time. Instead, by November 15th, Wilkinson was writing of his frustrations to Alexander Hamilton. He wrote to his former superior officer that, quote, I have extended my capacities for utility, but not my sphere of action. And in the present moment, my destination is extremely precarious. To divorce my sword is to rend a strong ligament of my affections, and to wear it without active service is becoming disreputable. Wilkinson at this point was starting to think of his retirement from the army and told Hamilton that, quote, should I retire, my permanent abode will be fixed in this quarter, because... After seeing and examining our whole country, I find this to be the most desirable part for a man of small capital, as it contains more interest and advantages in the important articles of health, accommodation, and products than any other which has attracted my observation. I have been drawn to the vicinity of Pensacola by the termination of a line of demarcation between our settlements and the Creek Indians, and availed myself of the occasion to pay my respects to the Spanish governor there not for mere motives of courtesy and personal accommodation. The site is a good one, and the harbor, divine. It seems only fitting that the former Spanish secret agent should retire in a Spanish colony. Hamilton, however, would not have understood the irony, as Wilkinson's duplicity was still not known. Whatever retirement plans Wilkinson may have been formulating had to be put aside shortly after, as he received a message from Washington calling him to an important duty. Unbeknownst to the general, when he was writing his letter to Hamilton, Secretary of State Madison had sent a letter to Governor Claiborne on October 31st, informing him that ratifications of the Louisiana Purchase Treaty had been exchanged and that he was including, quote, two commissions, one authorizing yourself and General Wilkinson jointly or separately to receive possession, the other vesting in you alone the power necessary for the immediate government of the ceded territory. Wilkinson was also ordered to, quote, Take with him all the regulars at hand to which are to be added as many of the militia of your territory as may be deemed a requisite precaution. 
Given the threats that have been communicated by the Spanish minister as discussed last episode, it was better to be safe than sorry. However, it was clear that the administration's trust was in Claiborne, not in Wilkinson. Though Wilkinson was invested with the power of leading troops to oust any Spanish forces in New Orleans if they did not agree to hand over possession of the port peacefully. Madison, in his instructions, attempted to cover all eventualities that Claiborne and Wilkinson may encounter in New Orleans, but should the transfer proceed peacefully, as expected, Claiborne would take the lead. Madison instructed him that, quote, Your powers, you will find, are left very extensive by the law, and are no otherwise restricted by your commission than was thought due to the feelings of the inhabitants, and the magnitude of certain powers, for the exercise of which there can be no necessity. The exception of these neither implies any distrust of a personal kind, nor will be understood to suggest an exercise of other important powers for which there may be no pressing occasion. For the manner of exercising those ample powers, no particular instructions are now given by the president. You will be led by your own judgment and your correct principles and dispositions to a prudent moderation and a conciliating deportment. Policy and justice towards the inhabitants equally requires both. Some reports started filtering back upriver that there was some tension between Spanish officials and newly arrived French officials in New Orleans. Indeed, before Louisiana could be transferred to the United States, it had to be formally transferred from the Spanish to the French. This handover occurred on November 30th. Any joy that might have been felt by residents who had desired a return to French control, however, was dampened by the knowledge that another transfer was soon to occur. After some minor delays in their journey downriver, Claiborne and Wilkinson found upon their arrival at the port city that, as Claiborne reported to Madison, quote, everything is quiet. The prefect has preserved the most perfect order in the city and its vicinity, and I persuade myself that in three days, the American flag will be raised amidst the shouts of a grateful people. On November 20th, as described by Claiborne biographer Joseph Hatfield, quote, activities began at 11 o'clock when the municipal militia paraded before the crowds of spectators who had gathered to witness the momentous occasion. Prefect Lassat duly observed that the balconies of the square, Place d'Armes, were filled with beautiful women and fashionable men, and Spanish officers wearing plumes. At noon, the two American commissioners rode into the square at the head of their military contingent, whose members were attired in dress uniforms. The American officials exchanged credentials with their French counterparts, and Lossat presented Claiborne the key to the city. The French flag was lowered slowly as the American flag was being raised aloft. The latter was stuck momentarily, as if it were confused at taking the place of that to which it owed its glorious independence. When the American flag was hoisted, Shots and the waving of hats were noted among one particular group, and the enthusiasm they displayed made more gloomy the silence and quietness of the rest of the spectators. Claiborne's official report of the event to Madison was much more cheerful. Quote, The standard of my country was this day unfurled here, amidst the reiterated acclamations of thousands. And if I may judge from professions and appearances, the government of the United States is received with joy and gratitude by the people. Despite any lingering resentments, despite the threats and trepidation and concerns, as of December 20, 1803, the Louisiana colony, which stretched from the Gulf of Mexico to the headwaters of the mighty Mississippi River, was now a part of the United States of America. As with all things, though, 
the pomp and circumstance of the handover would only be the beginning of another chapter of history. And there is still much to figure out in the details of what the now American Louisiana would look like. Meanwhile, time didn't stop in other parts of the world. In particular, events in Saint-Domingue would quickly come to impact the future of the United States and indeed the world. That, however, is a story that we shall have to tell another day as our time together is drawing to a close. Special thanks again to Jacob from the podcast on Germany for providing the intro quote for this episode. Once you're done, be sure to give his podcast a listen by going to podcastongermany, all one word, dot com. Special thanks also to the itinerant band, who graciously allowed us to use clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty for the intro and outro music for this series. If you'd like to support the podcast and get something practical yet soothing for yourself or a loved one, be sure to take advantage of our partnership with the Hero Soap Company. Given the current state of affairs, cleanliness is more important than ever. And the Hero Soap Company uses natural ingredients and essential oils to craft products that will soothe and cleanse your skin. Even better, they donate a percentage of their proceeds to charities that support veterans, first responders, and their families. By using the direct link on the website or going to Hero Soap Company, that's all one word, dot com, and using the promo code PRESIDENCIES at checkout, in addition to getting 10% off of your purchase, you'll not only help support those who have served the U.S. on the front lines at home and abroad, you'll also help me to offset the cost of this podcast, ensuring that I'm able to keep going on this journey for years to come. To learn more about the Hero Soap Company, the Itinerant Band, the podcast on Germany, or this podcast, check out the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. There, you'll find sources used for this episode, links to past episodes, and much more on presidential history. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out by sending an email to presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also connect with me on social media. I'm available on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. again, all one word. Finally, thank you so much for listening. It's always a pleasure to have this time with you to discuss presidential history, and I hope you'll join me for future episodes as there are some exciting events just around the corner in the narrative. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.